You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Thank you, Pamela. Good morning to all of you. I'm going to move this up a little bit. I want to start this morning um, by giving us a quiz. And so you can feel free to participate in this. I have three questions, and they're all true or false. It's, it's going to be pretty easy, but I, I'm trying to make a point here. So if we can go to the next slide here. This is our quiz, okay? So true or false, feel free to answer out loud. If you serve others, and by serving I mean like you humbly, actively seek out the well-being of other people. If you serve others, you will always be appreciated. True or false? False. Okay, some of you are saying that very enthusiastically. All right, so next one. True or false? If you serve others, you will never be falsely accused. False. Okay, last one. If you serve others, you will never be unjustly treated. That's false, right? So they're all false. We didn't have to take any time to think about that, right? It's things that we know as a result of our experience here in the fallen world. You can serve other people. You can bend over backwards for them, but that doesn't mean that they're going to appreciate it. That doesn't mean that they're going to treat you well. That doesn't mean that they won't even falsely accuse you of things um, as you're trying to help. And sometimes it feels like the more you try to help, the more you will experience this. It can feel that way. And I have my stories, and I'm sure you have your stories about that as well. So this is sort of like a given that's been validated by all of our experiences. But just knowing that's true doesn't help us a lot. Like, what are we supposed to do about it? Now, now some of us, you know, and I think the answer that our flesh gives us is to say, yeah, when you help people, you get hurt. Therefore, I won't help people, <laughs> right? I, I, I won't get involved. I'll keep people at a distance. Or at least... I will make sure that the list of people that I help, like serve, that they will be people I know won't do this. And so, because I need to protect myself, right? Now, there, there is probably a time and place to have good boundaries around abusive behavior and that sort of thing, to protect relationships, that kind of thing. But the New Testament on the whole is leading us in a different direction than what our how our flesh wants to go. So for example, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So now, <clears throat> was Paul ever hurt by other people that he was trying to serve? <laughs> Definitely, right? So he's not talking about like, he's not naive when he says this. That's what I mean. We're going we're gonna to really see that as we get to the latter part of the book of Acts. So Paul says, no, let, let, let's go in another direction. But what about Jesus? Well, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11, and then the beginning part of verse 12. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. And no one knows that better. Is Jesus talking 
in light of his experience. Yeah, Jesus experienced all of that. But see, when, when we look at Jesus in his whole life, that can be an encouragement to us and a motivation that we can continue to follow Jesus and we can continue to pour out our lives for others, to serve others, because when we look at the end of Jesus' life, yes, he does die on a cross, but that's not the end of the story, right? God then vindicates him. He makes things right. He clears his name. He puts him in his proper place. And so when we look at Jesus' life, that can be an encouragement to us, okay, Okay, yeah, no, God has got our back in the end. Like, we will suffer losses, but God's got our back in the end, and that was demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And that's sort of what I want to talk about this morning, is Jesus' exaltation. Now, we have been looking at Peter's address to this crowd of a 1,000 people from all, more than a 1,000, thousands of people from all over the world who have now congregated in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They have heard the, the, the disciples of Jesus, about 120 of them, speaking in tongues in their own native languages regarding the mighty works of God in Jesus. And we've also said that there's been two responses to them hearing this message from the disciples as they are speaking in tongues. There are those who are confused, but they are curious, and so they ask, what does this mean in Acts chapter 12, uh, 2, verse 12? And then there are those who bring this accusation against the disciples and say, look, these people are drunk with new wine. And that's in verse 13. But that's when Peter stands up and addresses these thousands of people in this crowd. And we have said that his response is constructed or organized around three Old Testament quotes. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which is a passage about the end time outpouring of the Spirit. Psalm 16, 8 through 11, which is ultimately about the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And then the section that we're going to look at today, which is constructed around a quotation of Psalm 110:1, which is about the exaltation of the Messiah. So what we find in our passage is that God, in the end, exalts Jesus at his ascension. It's his exaltation. And we learn three things regarding Jesus' exaltation from this passage. Number one, the Jesus' exaltation helps us to understand a little better what's going on at Pentecost. And we'll talk about how that is. The second thing that we learn about Jesus' exaltation was that it was foreseen by David in Psalm 110.1. And so we'll talk about that. But then the last thing, and this is our, our, our third point, we'll see that Jesus' exaltation is actually his vindication, where, where God makes everything right for Jesus and clears his name. And so we'll see how that works as we go through each of these three points. But let's first talk about Jesus' exaltation and how it explains Pentecost. What Peter does in this third section of his address is he relates Jesus' exaltation to what he has been previously talking about in the first section. Now, if you remember in the first section, Peter quotes Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. Okay, what's that passage about? Let's remind ourselves. It's the passage where Joel says, 
look, before the final day of the Lord comes, right, which has been foreshadowed by this plague of locusts, before the final day of the Lord comes, Yahweh is going to pour out his spirit on all of his people, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of station in life, right? And what the result of that will be is that the people of God will prophesy. Just like the, Joel was prophesying in his day, he's saying there's a time that's going to come before the day of the Lord when not just I'm going to be a prophet, all God's people are going to be prophets. And what are they going to be declaring? Warnings regarding the final day of the Lord, the coming judgment, but also, also words of, of comfort and salvation for those who turn in repentance. Right, so there's this warning and then this invitation. Those are kind of features of prophecy. He's saying, in that the day before the in, in the time before the day of the Lord, the final judgment, all my people are going to be prophesying and declaring these warnings and giving this invitation to repent. Now, so that's the first section. That's just a reminder about the first section. Now, in the third section, what Peter does is he's he's circling back to this topic of the end-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then he relates it to Jesus' exaltation. So listen to his words again in verse 33. Peter says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he that is Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So just like he said in the, in the first section, what you're hearing and seeing does not come as a result of drunkenness. It comes as a result of the Holy Spirit, as was mentioned in Joel chapter 2, being poured out on God's people. But in Joel chapter 2, who's the person pouring out the Spirit? Yahweh. But now Peter's saying, Jesus. Because even despite you know, what scholars might say on the Discovery Channel, right? Even the early church, very, very early on within a generation of of Jesus' resurrection, they were worshiping Jesus as God and connecting him with Yahweh. So he says, yeah, Jesus pours out the end-time Holy Spirit, right? And then the question that would immediately arise in the minds of those hearing this is like, well, how in the world can that be, Right? And like, how can, he, how can he be qualified to do that would be the question, right? How is he able to, right? Well, Peter explained. He said he gave two qualifiers before he said he would do that. He said, well, he was given that by the Father. And also, he has the authority to do that because God has exalted him to his right hand, meaning he's given him the greatest position of authority and honor in all of the universe, That's at the Father's right hand. That's how you understand that phrase. And what Revelation 3.21 tells us is that God the Son sits... There's one throne in God, in heaven. There's only one. God the Father and God the Son sit on that throne. Now, that's always been true, but the difference now is that now Jesus, the God-man... That wasn't true before, right? God the Son took on human flesh 
And now he brings that humanity into the throne room of God and sits on the throne with God the Father and recaptures, this is great, uh, he recaptures the original cultural mandate given to Adam. Adam was meant to reign with God over creation. Did he succeed in that endeavor? No, right? God says, no problem. I already knew this was going to happen, right? I'm going to send my son, and then the God-man will bring humanity onto the throne, and we'll see how that affects us in a little bit, right? So Peter is saying, look, when you look at what's going on around you, right, and you're hearing these things, you're seeing these things on the day of Pentecost, what you're experiencing is not drunkenness, but the consequence and even the evidence of Jesus's exaltation, meaning his enthronement, meaning Jesus is Lord, he's king. But notice, let me ask you a question. What would you do? Let, let's say, let's just, let's just confine it to enclave, right? One day, everybody other than you decides they're going to crucify you, put you on a cross. Then God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to raise you. I'm going to give you all authority. All authority is given unto me is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28. How are you then going to use your authority? <laughs> Probably not like this. But how does Jesus use his authority? He pours himself out again. He pours his spirit out. Because this is the nature of God. To pour himself out. And, and, and how, why? To pour into us so that what? We might be poured out. Right? This, is a, this is a redefinition of how we understand power and authority, and we see it throughout the life of, of Jesus. So part of the thing that we're supposed to understand from Jesus' exaltation is that, okay, that reframes what's happening at Pentecost. Right? Jesus is now demonstrating that he has been enthroned by giving the Holy Spirit. So that's point number one. But the second thing that we learn is that Jesus' exaltation was foreseen. It was talked about beforehand by David in Psalm 110.1. Starting again in verse 34 of Acts chapter 2. There it says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David never ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Never was he given this kind of authority. But David in Psalm 110.1, he says, no, but there's another. There's another. Now, now Jesus also references the same passage in this exchange that he has with the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 22. This is after a bunch of questions that the Jewish leaders are asking Jesus where they're trying to trip him up in his words. And then he gets through all of those, and then Jesus finally asks them a question. And that's recorded in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 42. He says, what do you think, this is to the Jewish leaders, 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Just remember that question. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, right, as he's writing scripture, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, David's not really calling his son Lord, is he? He's not really calling his son Adonai, is he? That's what it would be in Hebrew in, in, in Psalm 110.1, is he? Jesus is identifying three entities in Psalm 110.1. There's David, the writer of the psalm. There's the Lord, who in Psalm 110.1 is capital L-O-R-D, so Yahweh, right? And then there's my Lord, Adonai, right? Which is another divine reference. So there's two divine entities in Psalm 110.1, written by David in the Old Testament. And so what, now, Jesus' point is not to say the Christ is not the son of David. Not the son of, uh, of David's descendant. Like, there's many, many, many passages that point to the fact that the Christ will come from the line of David. Jesus affirms this. You see this in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. He's not saying that, but what he is saying, he, he's, he's questioning whether that answer sufficiently covers the identity of the Christ. Because what was his original question? Whose son is he? Isn't it interesting how Jesus answers, imposes questions. It's so indirect. Like he would have failed my evangelism class, right? Like he, how are you supposed to understand what's going on? But like, but it's for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, right? He's saying, could it be that the Christ is the son of God? Now this same question is confronting people in the world today. It's not posed in exactly the same way, but I don't know about you guys, but most of the people that I know, that I interact with, believer and non-believer, they, they are pro-Jesus, okay? They, they may refashion Jesus to reflect their own image, but, but in the, on the whole, they're pro-Jesus. They think he's loving. They think he's a good teacher, all these kinds of things. But does that cover everything that Jesus is? Or is he more than that, as Psalm 1 seems to imply? And so what Peter does here with this passage, following the lead of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, but then also sort of employing the same interpretive method that we've seen him use over and over and over again with regard to the Old Testament, he reads it Christologically. Because that's what all the apostles do throughout the whole New Testament. They read the Old Testament Christologically just as Jesus told them to. And so he reads that in light of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he says this, this is about Jesus' ascension. This, this means that Jesus is 
the Son of God. There is a Adonai beside Yahweh. There is a God beside God. That, that's how John 1.18 talks about it. There's a God beside God. And that's always been true. But the thing that's different now is now Jesus comes into that equation as not just the Son of God, but as the God-man, the Christ. But what does Yahweh say to the Christ? Right? Look back at the quotation. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Yahweh tells the Christ where to sit and how long. Sit at my right hand. We've already said that's the ultimate place of honor and authority in all of the universe. But then he says, how long? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, similar imagery is used in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3, to talk about how David conquers the enemies of the people of God for, the ben for their benefit, right? Because that's what the Christ does. The Christ conquers the enemies of God for the benefit of the people of God. And, and David, as a lowercase c, Christ, does that. And we call that, and you look at Isaiah 52.7, uh, other places in Isaiah, that is referred to as the gospel. The good news that the Christ comes, defeats the enemies of God for the benefit of God's people. Right? And so as a foreshadowing of the Christ, that's what David does. He, he conquers them, and the evidence of that conquering, or the, or the language that they use to talk about it, is that those enemies are put under the feet of the king. Now notice how this is written. All of this tells us about the already not yet nature of Jesus' kingdom. On one level... Right? Jesus has already defeated his enemies. Sin, death, and the devil at the cross for the benefit of his people. So like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, he talks about that defeat with relative to death. Right? But if you look at Colossians 2, 15, then he talks about Jesus' defeat over the devil and sin. Right? So there's a sense in which Jesus has already defeated his enemies. And that idea is being communicated here with the imagery of him being, of sitting down. And that's not just my interpretation. This is how the author of Hebrews understands it too. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14, he argues there, Jesus, unlike the Old Testament high priest, doesn't stand at the altar offering sacrifices over and over and over again. He offers one sacrifice of himself, and then he sits down. Why does he sit down? Because he's done. And so the idea of completion is there. Jesus has already defeated sin, death, and the devil. But there's another sense in which the fullness of that victory is yet to be experienced by us in its fullness. In other words, there are battles that continue to rage even though the war has already been won. And the outcome is sure. Hebrews 2.8 talks about that. Now, it's, it's the sureness of this, right? The, the sureness of this is what, what helps us continue to follow God by the power of the Holy Spirit and to serve others without fear. We don't have to fear any type of real or permanent loss,
There's loss in the Christian life. But it's not the kind of real permanent loss. There's things that won't go with you into heaven. But those are the things you don't want to bring with you into heaven. Right? So in the end, right, in a sense, Christianity is about dying to self, self-denial. But in the end, it's like trading in garbage for gold. Is there any real loss in that? No. So there's not. Now, okay, so here's the thing. What if we actually believed this? Like, Andrew, it's in our doctrinal statement. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. What if you actually believed that the war was won? I, I think that part of us not pouring ourselves out for other people is not because, well, you know, we just need to try a little harder. It's because we don't actually believe it. Because we assess the situation with our own fleshly eyes and we say, man, there's real permanent loss there. And, but he sat down though. So the war has been won. And then if that's true and if Jesus is pouring out his spirit, then we will pour out. It will happen. And, and, and this is not a guilt trip. Oh, don't let the devil do that. This is an invitation. Right? To, like, this is, <laughs> the people at Pentecost, they didn't do the things that they did because they were like, you know what, we have, we've been doing it wrong. And we're so, we feel so guilty about it. Let's just, come on, guys, let's just try harder. Like, no, no, there's praying. And a rushing wind came in. <laughs> and, and tongues of fire landed on their head. And they talked in languages that they didn't previously know. Like they didn't go to a seminar for that. They, didn't, they, it, they were just yielded to God. And God said, boom, here we go. Like 3,000 people came to faith that day. It's like a good day at church, you know, when 3,000 people come to faith, right? And God did it, right? God, the war is won. The war is won. The battles rage, right? But, but don't lose sight of that, right? Just like he's, he told the children of Israel when they're at the edge of the promised land, right? He says, I am giving you this land. Okay. <laughs> now go and take it. How do you, how does that work? Yeah, but the, the same is true of the Christian life. It's like, these are all the things I'm giving you. Now just come and embrace it. Be, be, be who I declare you to be already. And he will complete the work that he began in you. So we have every kind of confidence that we can be hopeful because of what God has done. So Jesus' exaltation, right? It, it, it explains to us, okay, how should we understand Pentecost? It was foreseen by David in Psalm 110.1. But it was also Jesus' vindication. This is our third point. 
Peter goes on to say in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So now Israel can know for certain by virtue of the fact that Jesus has been ascended to the right hand of God the Father, that the verdict and sentence that they gave to Jesus was wrong. And so therefore God had to vindicate him. I, was, um, I saw this pretty disturbing news story this past week about a man named Richard Rosario who was wrongfully accused of murder in the Bronx in 1996. I believe he was 17 at the time. But he had 13 credible alibi witnesses that put him in Florida 1,000 miles away from the scene of the crime. He didn't even know that the murder had occurred. When he came back to the Bronx, his friends and family were telling him, hey, the police are looking for you. They think that you murdered this person. And he, didn't, he wasn't concerned about it because he knew he was in another state, right? So he went to the police, and he gave them the names of all the people who could confirm the fact that he was in Florida at the time of the murder. When it, he was arrested, he went to trial. When it came time for people to take the stand, not one of the 13 were asked to go to the stand. Neither were they even contacted by the police. <laughs> he's 17 years old. He doesn't know how this works. It's just like, he's like, what's, what's happening right now? He's given the verdict of guilty. He's sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. And only after, only 20 years later, was that verdict reversed, and then he was let go at the age of 37. And he's just like, I haven't been to prison, but I heard it's not nice. And to spend 20 years there, it's like this huge miscarriage of justice. But when we think about Jesus, he knows what that's like. See, Richard Rosario, he's probably a good guy, but there's probably things that he did wrong in his life, right? Jesus literally never did anything wrong. And yet he was wrongfully accused and unjustly treated. Like he was drugged into a courtroom in the middle of the night in one of the judge's houses. Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of a, a court hearing happening in the middle of the night in a judge's house? What, what would you think about that? <laughs> like, well, that, something's fishy about this, right? And he was convicted. He actually had two convictions. One by his own kinsman, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is sort of like the Jewish Supreme Court. They convict him of blasphemy because they're trying to... Jesus knows they don't really want to know. And so Jesus becomes very elusive when people ask him questions that, that he knows they don't really want to know. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus? But he does say this. He says, well, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God the Father coming on the clouds. That's, that's what he says. That's what he says in Matthew 26 to their question when they're trying to get to his identity. But yeah, I'm going to be the one sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Now that's enough. That's enough for the chief priest 
He knows the scriptures enough to be like, oh my goodness, rips his blasphemy. Do we need to hear anything else? Right? But then they hand him over to the, to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and he convicts him not of blasphemy, but of insurrection. Like, a, you know, uh, he's, like, uh, he's performing this coup over the Roman Empire, right? Because he's claiming to be the Christ, the king of the Jews. Now, what's, what's crazy about all that is that these things are, in a sense, they're actually true regarding Jesus, right? Or Jesus is, at, it's not blasphemy because he is divine, right? He does sit at the right hand. He will. I, I mean, when he ascends, he's at the right hand of God the Father. And he is the king of the Jews. In fact, he's the king of the universe. And what they should have done was submit to him as the Messiah. But what they do instead is they give him the verdict of guilty and they sentence him to death on a cross. But, now think about who these people are. So the Roman Empire says, you're, vic you're, you're guilty, deserving of death on a cross. That the biggest supreme court of the Jews say the same thing for a different reason. But do they have the final say? No, they don't. God has the final say. And so he vindicates Jesus because he's the supreme judge. So he reverses the decision, right, by raising him from the dead and enthroning him at the, at the Father's right-hand side. And so what, G, what Peter does, like knowing all of this, he says in, in, the, in the face of opposition of the crowds, at least that portion of the crowd that says, no, you guys are just drunk. He's like, this is not drunkenness. This comes as a result of God reversing the verdict and sentence that you put on Jesus, that you put on Jesus. Now, there's probably a lot of takeaways from this, but one takeaway has got to be this. Don't give up. Keep following God. Keep pouring yourself out to others. Because those who are joined to Jesus in faith, they will be vindicated too. I referenced this scripture earlier, but I just want to read it to you. This is, this is Revelation 3.21. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, The one who conquers... In Revelation 12.11, those who conquer are those who claim the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, right? and they don't count their life worthy of not being martyred for, right? So they, they cling to Jesus. That's the point. Those who cling to Jesus, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Can you imagine that? If you belong to Jesus, you're going to sit on Jesus' throne as he sits with God the Father on his throne? Do you, <laughs> I can, can you think of the scale of this? I mean, what? Does anyone deserve that in this room? No! And yet he does it. 
And so here at the end, Peter wants us to focus on Jesus' exaltation. It helps us understand what's going on at the Pentecost. Jesus is given authority. He uses that authority to pour himself out again so that we can pour ourselves out to others. Right? This was all foreseen in the past in Psalm 110.1. Right? He will sit at the right hand of God the Father. Right? And this is Jesus' vindication. And if you belong to him, it's your vindication too. Let's pray together. Father, who could, who could even understand the depth of your grace? That you, that you would take rebels, those who rose up in arms against your kingdom, change them from the inside out, and sit them on the throne. Only you could do that. Father, help us, help us to believe what our inheritance is. And Lord, may that motivate us to pour ourselves out for others, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.